This is Josh Smith, pastor of Prince Avenue Baptist Church in Bogart, Georgia. Our mission at Prince is simple, leading people to trust and follow Jesus. And it's our hope that this sermon would help accomplish that mission. For more information about our church, visit us at pabc.org. Amen. We'll take your copy of God's Word and turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. We'll be finishing this chapter this morning, Lord willing, verses 22 all the way through 36. So many of you over the last few weeks have said to me how encouraged and impacted, affected you have been by the Gospel of John. And that really encourages me. I'm so thankful to know that God's Word is working in your life and bearing fruit and resonating with you. And honestly, most of the time when people say that to me, I respond by saying, it's doing the same thing in my heart. I don't know if I've ever preached a book that I have felt resonated more with me, that meant more to me, that impacted me more than this one. And so what I bring to you every Sunday is the result of, of a lot of time throughout the week, just meditating on text and studying text. And so I I have the wonderful joy of being just immersed in this throughout the week, and it's really, really ministering to me and helping me. And I've, I've been thinking recently, I, I just I wonder why that is. I wonder why it is that I felt the Gospel of John has uniquely impacted my life over the last few months as we've been in it. And I, and I think there's a few reasons. I think part of it is John's heart. John tells us the reason of which he's writing, John 20, 31. These things have been written that you might believe, and by believing have my li- might have life in his name. I love John's mission. I love that his heart and desire is that we would not only believe, but keep believing, and not only come to life, but keep experiencing more and more life. It is John who 17 times tells us that he's writing so that we would have eternal life. Not just talking about the time of living forever, but the quality of our life. It is John 10.10 in which he says that he wants us to know life and life in the fullness. Fullness of life is what he wants us to have. And you say, where is it that John got that passion for life and that passion for fullness and that passion for joy? He got it from Jesus. I don't know what we think about when we think about Jesus But one of the things I believe the Gospel of John does is maybe change our thoughts of him a little bit because Jesus had a lot of joy. And it's in John 15, 11, which Jesus writes, and he says, my desire for you, Jesus says, is that my joy would be in you and that your joy would be complete or would be full. You say, where's the source of joy? Where do we get joy? Well, the answer is from Jesus. Jesus, who is full of joy, wants us to have his same joy. And and so it is that John, having spent this time with Jesus, got a little taste of that joy. And he wants it and he wants us to have it as well. But I think it also resonates with me because of my own spiritual journey. I feel like so much of my early Christian life for a long period of time was a desperate search for all of those things that every preacher said were promised, but I never could experience. Life, abundant life, and joy, and, and peace, and, and fulfillment. My early Christian life was filled with so much frustration, and anxiety, uncertainty, and confusion. A lot of striving. I mean, I think some of it came from a heart that wanted to do right by God, and, and wanted to be used by God, but the result was just so much of God. What else do I need to do, and what more can I do for you? And it was exhausting in many ways. 
And it really was John who through the years started to lead me out of that. And I think I'm realizing as we study this, how many of the text in John were just critical in my life, helping me understand what we've been referring to as living in loving union with Jesus Christ. And what it means to experience the presence of God and to enjoy him. And then allow the work that God is doing in us to be the work that flows through us. It is the John 4, John 7, rivers of living water flowing through us. It is the John 15, learning to simply abide in Jesus, to be close in our relationship with Jesus. To put great effort into being close to Jesus, but then realizing that through that effort, it is God who is bearing fruit through us. And it is John who's really led me into that. And so part of it is John's heart, part of it is my own spiritual journey, but part of it is, is my heart for you. I want you to experience this. I want you to know this. I don't want you to come to church and hear the preacher talk about abundant life and fullness of joy and that to be so elusive to you. Uh, God in his grace has allowed me to, to get a taste of this. And I think just a taste, there's so much more, but just a taste of loving time with Jesus and enjoying his presence and experiencing some of his fullness. And I just want more than anything for you to have that and for you to know it. I think a lot about Philippians 1.25 in which Paul says to the church in Philippi, I don't know whether I'm going to come back and see you or not, but I think I'm going to remain with you. Here's what he says, for your progress and joy in the faith. I pray that as much as I pray anything for you. I want my ministry to be about your progress and your joy. That you would continue to know Jesus more and walk in him more. But you would also have an increased joy. And I think what I'm discovering is that it's John who really has that same heart and wants to lead us very slowly and step by step into this life that he experienced himself through Jesus and wants us to experience as well. And that's exactly the point of our text today. The point of our text today is, is how can we experience a content and joyful life? And we get to experience this and see this and learn from what I would say is the joyful and content life of John the Baptist. If your thoughts of Jesus are often that he's stern and harsh, I would have to believe your thoughts of John the Baptist would be more so. But the reality is, is John teaches us what it means to have a joyful and content life uh, with God. And so here is John the Apostle writing to us about John the Baptist and using John the Baptist as an example of this full and joyful and content life. And as I think about this generation and the struggles of this generation, I'm not sure there's any Bible character we need more of apart from Jesus Christ than John the Baptist. We need more John the Baptist in our life. We need to sit more with John the Baptist and look more at John the Baptist and learn more from this camel-haired, robe-wearing, locust-eating, loud-preaching, outdoor-living, wild prophet of God. We need more of that guy in our life. Because I think what he teaches us is he teaches us the way out of the exhausting and desperate search for significance and affirmation and acceptance and approval. Listen to that. I believe John the Baptist leads us out of the exhausting and desperate search for significance and affirmation, acceptance and approval. And he leads us instead into a life in which we are content and filled with joy. A life in which we know who God is and we know who we are. 
in which we're confident in who God is and confident in who he's made us to be. And all of the struggle and angst and frustration of trying to figure out who I am and why I matter and will I fit in, all of those questions are answered as we come to know Jesus and to see him the way John the Baptist did. So let's look what John the Apostle has to say about him, starting in verse 22. It says this. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been put in prison. Verse 25. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Now the whole context for this story is set for us in verses 22 through 24. As a matter of fact, it clears up something which might have been confusing. And the purpose of that strange little phrase, that parenthetical statement in verse 24, for John had not yet been put in prison, is clearing up what John thought was also a misunderstanding. John would have known about the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, having written his last, and would have thought that maybe there's some confusion about the overlap of John's ministry, John the Baptist, and Jesus' ministry. We tend to think that when John was preaching, Jesus came and was baptized. At that moment, John kind of went into oblivion and Jesus took over. But what John the apostle knows, that there was a moment in which their ministries overlapped. That's what it tells us in verses 22 and 23. So there was a moment when Jesus and his disciples were also preaching, baptizing, making disciples, confronting the religious leaders. And at the very same time, John was doing the same thing. He also was preaching and baptizing, confronting the religious leaders, discipling, and both of them had large crowds coming to them. We know from the ministry of Jesus, what we'll see later, that large crowds were coming to him. But we also know in verse 23, because it says people were coming and being baptized, the emphasis there is they were continually coming to John, that John was also having crowds as well. And so here's John the Baptist and Jesus having these simultaneous ministries, doing the exact same things. But there was a shift happening. Very slowly, the ministry of John was decreasing while the ministry of Jesus was increasing. So we already know from chapter 1, some of John the Baptist's disciples left John and began to follow Jesus, his two first disciples. 
that it was John who looked at Jesus and said, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. I have come to prepare the way for this one. And so it is that some of his disciples left and started following Jesus. And so this shift is taking place where John's ministry is slowly fading. It won't be long before John is put in prison and beheaded and Jesus' ministry is increasing. And it's that shift taking place that helps us to understand exactly what's happening here. So John the Apostle shifts the focus for just a little bit to John the Baptist in verse 25. It says this, while both of their ministries were going on, now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. Now, what seems to be happening is John is baptizing, he's ministering, and here are his disciples standing there watching him. And while they're there, a Jew knows that these are the disciples of John the Baptist and comes and asks them a question. They ask them a question about purification, about the forgiveness of sins. We don't know exactly what the question is, but we do know that this issue has come up in every single chapter so far. It's come up in chapter 1, verse 25, when the religious leaders come and ask John the Baptist what he's doing and why he's baptizing. It comes up in chapter 2, verse 6, when you have these huge stone jars with the water of purification that Jesus turns into wine. And it comes up in chapter 3, verse 5, when Jesus says, if you want your sins forgiven, if you want to be cleansed of sins, you have to be born of the water and the spirit. A water not referring to physical birth, but of the cleansing that the Lord does of our sins when the spirit of God comes into our life. And so this issue of purification has come up over and over, but somehow this Jew has a question. How are our sins forgiven? Now, we know that the question had something to do specifically with John and Jesus and their ministries because of the way John's disciples respond. It could have been something like this. Hey, you guys are still baptizing, but Jesus is also baptizing. John has already said he's not the Christ or the prophet or Elijah. So why do we need John's baptism if we have Jesus's? And if we were already baptized by John, do we need to go get baptized by Jesus? It seemed like we would if Jesus is greater. So why is John, your guy, still baptizing? It was something like this because this discussion really bothered John's disciples. It rattled them. They were frustrated by it because of the question they asked in verse 26. So look, so a Jew asked a question about purification. So then John's disciples go immediately after that and ask John something. But notice, they didn't ask about purification. So it's almost what bothered them was not the question. What bothered them was the nature of the question. And they ask John, Rabbi... He who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. Now, every line of their question is both sad and entertaining. Every line of their question is saying something about the way in which they're feeling. We can know the way they're feeling by the type of question they ask. First of all, they begin by calling John rabbi. This is a phrase that's used seven other times in the Gospel of John, and every time it's used to refer to Jesus as it was previously in chapter 3, except for this one. It is as if the disciples are saying, we know that Jesus is also a rabbi, but John, you're our rabbi. You're our guy. We met you first and decided to be your disciples, and we've chosen to follow you. And so, John, we just want you to know, man, we're committed to you. We know Jesus is getting a lot of attention, but, but don't worry. I know some of the others have left, but we're with you. You're our guy. You're our rabbi. And then they say this. You know, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness. Now, they knew Jesus' name. 
They knew Jesus' name. We know from what's going to come next in the text, and we know from John chapter 1 that he had already told his disciples who Jesus was. They knew exactly who Jesus was, and they knew his name, but they weren't going to say it because they were upset with Jesus right now. And so they just say, hey, John, I don't know if you remember you remember that guy a few months ago who we saw, he was across the river, and you, you said something about him. Do you remember that guy? That's how they treat Jesus. John's like, yeah, I remember, and you remember too. His name's Jesus. But they don't want to say his name. And then it, it says this. It says, look, he is baptizing. John, you're John the Baptist. It's not Jesus the Baptist. No one ever called him Jesus the Baptist. It's John the Baptist. He's doing what you do. John, you kind of started this whole baptism movement. This is your thing. You're the one that's doing this. You did it first, and now he's over there baptizing. But it's the last phrase that really helps us to know their heart because the disciples say this, and all are going to him, which we know is not true. John, the apostle, intentionally helped us to know that from verse 23 because it says, and people were still coming to John the Baptist. So John the Baptist still had a crowd while Jesus had a crowd, but the disciples stop and go this, hey, J John, everybody's going to Jesus. But they weren't, but, but they, he said everybody's going to Jesus. Now listen, oftentimes our propensity towards exaggeration flows from a heart of resentment. I'm not going to spend much time on this because it's not a marriage conference. But exaggeration most often flows from resentment. You always do this. You never do this. You are just like this person. And even if we don't say it out loud, we think it. They never do this. They always do this. They won't do this. They always do this. All of it. You say, where does that come from? The answer is resentment. If you have resentment in your heart towards someone, you tend to exaggerate who they are and who they aren't. And so here are the disciples of John saying, John, Jesus is baptizing. Everyone's going to them. We've got nothing left because they're speaking in a way that's filled with resentment and anger and frustration and envy. The bottom line is they're ticked because Jesus is getting all the attention and everyone's going to him. Now, for just a moment here, I think we initially have a tendency to look at John's disciples and say, what a bunch of idiots. Let's just be honest. Like, guys, <laughs> John the Baptist already said to you that this is the guy over here. Like, th this is Jesus. He's the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. I've already told you I'm not the Messiah. And you just can't believe that these guys are feeling as if their whole life is crumbling down because people are following Jesus. This is what was supposed to happen. But let's put ourselves in this position. All of us are looking for some place of significance. We're looking for our group. We're looking for our people. We're looking for the place that we fit in. When we start a new school, when we go to a new college, but even as adults, we're just, we just want to find our place. Where do we find our significance? Where do we find our sense of identity? And what happened here is that these men chose to follow John the Baptist. And they found their significance in being a disciple of John the Baptist. They found their identity in being connected with John the Baptist. They were friends with the famous guy. John was famous. All these people were coming to him. And over to the side were his disciples saying, well, yeah, we're disciples of John the Baptist. So much so that this Jew knew to even ask them a question. And so what's happening here 
is not just their frustration that people are leaving John, they're losing their identity. They're losing their sense of significance. They're, they're losing the place where they found acceptance and where they found affirmation. So everyone is kind of doting on them because they're disciples of, of John the Baptist. They receive a lot of affirmation from all they're doing. And so in one moment, what they're losing is everything that's made them feel significant. They had found their life and their joy and their sense of purpose in John the Baptist. And all of a sudden, as his ministry fades, so does their sense of knowing who they are. Now imagine this, if it was bad for John's disciples, how much more for John? I mean, John was, was losing everything. He only really had four things, okay? John had preaching, he had baptizing, confronting the religious leaders and discipling. That's the only four things John had. Now imagine this, Jesus shows up and not only does he do all four things, he does them all dramatically better. That's hard. Imagine you've got four things you do and this is all you do, you've got your things and somebody shows up and does everything better. They take all the, they take all the plays from your playbook and they do everything that you do and they do it all better, so much so that people are starting to think, why are we hanging out with John? We go hang out with Jesus. Like why would we be here? John's losing everything. And the disciples are bothered. They're bothered for themselves and they're bothered because John's their guy. Rabbi, you're our guy. So how does John feel? He's not bothered one bit. There's these envious, resentful disciples who feel as if Everything they know and everything they have is fleeting away and John is not bothered at all. As a matter of fact, for the next verses, he just rebukes his disciples for feeling this way. Look what he says in verse 27. He says, John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's been given him from heaven. Meaning, guys, the only reason I have anything is because Jesus gave it to me. Like the only reason I can preach, the only reason I can disciple, the only reason I have any authority is because it's been given to me by God. I have nothing that I haven't received so how can I boast in my preaching and ministry when I've just received it? I'm just functioning in the calling that God has placed upon my life. He says in verse 28, you yourselves bear me witness that I said this. This is not the first time you've heard this. I've been saying from the beginning, I'm not the Christ. I've just been sent before him. And we know this testimony is true because of chapter one. Guys, I told you this. I told you that all I came to do is, is prepare the way and at some point I'm gonna kind of go off and, and this guy's gonna come and get the attention. And then he gives an illustration. Verse 29, here's his illustration. He says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom. It's an incredibly powerful illustration and a beautiful one. It deserves a whole sermon. It's not gonna get one, but it deserves one. Here's what John says. God has always said that one day someone's gonna come to rescue his bride. He's gonna come and lay down his life and sacrifice everything and provide for his bride. The bride is the church and who is the groom that's gonna come and rescue them? His name is Jesus Christ. And church, we are the bride of Christ. We are the beloved of Christ. And Christ has come to lay down his life for us, to sacrifice everything so that he might bring us to himself all the way until we get to Revelation 19 in the marriage supper of the lamb, the great consummation of our relationship with Jesus Christ. What John says is this, listen, there's only one guy that leaves the ceremony with the bride and it should be the groom. 
John's saying, I'm not the groom. Why am I jealous for the bride? Why am I upset that the bride is leaving me to go to the groom? This is exactly how it's supposed to happen. Jesus has come to capture his bride. And that's exactly what he's doing, guys. He's, he's gathering his bride. And John says this. At the greatest, I'm just the best man. He says here, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom, the best man, who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Now, in these days, much more significant than in our days, the best man had a responsibility financially, and he really served almost as the wedding coordinator to make sure every single thing was right and went according to plan. But what would be worse than a jealous best man? A best man who's angry because the groom showed up dressed all nicer than everyone else. Who worked the crowd and talked to everyone like it was all about him. Imagine if he's just angry because the groom has the audacity to leave with the most beautiful dressed up woman at the place. Well, that's exactly what his job is. His job as the best man is to make sure that the bride and groom are together and leave and no one at the end of the ceremony is to remember the best man. They're to remember the bride and groom. And so John uses this illustration to say, guys, this isn't about me at all. This is about the groom who's coming to get his bride. And I'm simply here to prepare the way. But look at that last little phrase there in verse 29 where it says, And the best man, the friend of the bridegroom, rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. That's such a strange thing to say to me. I, I, it seems so strange. Why would he rejoice at the voice of the groom? There's a lot of things to rejoice in, but the voice? I spent a lot of time trying to figure that out. Why does he say, I rejoice at the voice? And then I realized. In John chapter 1, verse 23, the religious leaders come to John the Baptist and they say, are you the Christ? He says, no. Are you Elijah? No. Are you a prophet? No. What are you? You know what he says? I am the voice. I'm the voice. That's all I am. I'm just the voice. I'm nothing else. All I am is a voice that's preparing the way. And so the one thing that John has, the one calling upon his life is to be the voice. And now all of a sudden he says, I rejoice greatly that there's another voice that's better and louder than mine. I'm going to stop talking and let that voice be the one that you hear. You see, he's identifying the one sense of what we would think would be his earthly significance and saying that I rejoice when I hear a voice better than my voice. And then he makes two incredible statements. The first one at the end of 29, therefore this joy of mine is complete. John the Baptist says the reality is that the groom has come and, and the voice has come and so my joy is complete. And that word complete is the exact same word used in John 15, 11, when Jesus says, I want your joy to be full. So listen to the significance of that. What we say and rightly say is, I just want the joy of the Lord. I want full joy. Jesus, you promised it. I've never experienced it. I hear preachers talking about it, but I want joy. John says that what Jesus promised to give, he's already experienced. I, John says, my joy is complete. I have fullness of joy. And what he says is the more have I've discovered that as Jesus gets the attention, then my joy becomes more full. The source of my joy is the glory of Jesus. And then look what he says in verse 30. So he must increase and I must decrease. So because, John says, I've discovered 
that the more I choose to exalt Jesus with my life, the more joy I get. I'm going to make a decision, verse 30, to continually defer all the attention to Jesus for the sake of my own joy. John the Baptist wants the joy. He's hungry for the joy. And he started to realize the way you get the joy. So listen, it is good and it is right and it is holy to want the joy as long as you come to understand that the joy is found in Jesus. John says, I got a little taste of it, and I want more of it. And he looks at his disciples and says, guys, this doesn't steal my joy. This is the source of my joy. I have come to find that my significance in life is joy, and, and joy in life is found in making sure Jesus gets all of the glory. And then he just keeps going. In verse 31, he says, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. And so what happens in verse 31, and it's going to happen to the end of the chapter, is John just begins to compare himself with Jesus. Guys, I know you're bothered, and I know this is hard for you. But first thing he says is this, Jesus is above all. I'm from the earth, he says, and so I speak earthly things, but Jesus is above all. Do you see how he says it twice? Circle that. He's above all, he says, and then he comes from heaven. He's above all. It's all about Jesus. And then he says, Jesus has all the truth. Verse 32, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard. He talks about what he heard from heaven, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. He has all truth. He also has all the spirit. The father gives the spirit to Jesus without measure. All of the spirit is on him. He has all the authority, verse 35. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. So what John is saying is this. John says, I've been called by God. I've been given a message, I have the spirit, and I speak with authority. So that's true. And that's why you were attracted to me. You came to follow me because you sensed the hand of God on my life. And you were right. But listen, Jesus is God. And Jesus is the truth. And Jesus is full of the spirit. Jesus has all authority. And what's amazing to me right now, I want you to think about this. You have the exact same situation happening. And here's John the Baptist, and here's his disciples. They're a part of the exact same scenario. The disciples feel as if they're losing everything, grasping onto something that they can't keep. They're feeling their joy slowly disappear with every single person that leaves them to go follow Jesus. Yet the exact same situation gives John more joy. Isn't that an amazing thought? The same situation, so the issue is not the situation. The issue is not the circumstance. It really never is. It's about the way in which we deal with the circumstance and the situation. You see, what's being exposed, the disciples found their joy and significance in life in the fleeting nature of trying to grab onto the glory. They just were so desperate for attention and affirmation, they had to keep bringing it back to themselves. And their lives were consumed with self-love and self-interest and self-promotion. They were hungry for affirmation and the approval of others. And all of a sudden, the people that gave it to them are gone, and they don't know who they are anymore. Where are they going to get affirmation? Where are they going to get approval? Because those people just left. And here's John, wearing his camel-haired robe, eating locusts and wild honey. And he's just happy as he's ever been. His voice is getting dimmer. Less and less people are coming to be baptized. And he's just so happy. And he's so content. And what John teaches us is the great paradox of walking with Jesus. It's what we call the upside down kingdom. In order to live, you have to die. 
What John showed us is the more that you care about what people think of Jesus and the less you care about what people think of you, the more you come to know significance and joy in life. Do you get that? The more that you care about what people think of Jesus and the less you care about what they think about you, it's actually in that place where you get more life and more joy and more sense of significance. One of the things I really struggled with this week is, is not just the text itself, but, but asking the question, why is it here? It seems odd in the whole story and how this is going because John the Baptist was already in chapter one and we kind of concluded that. And then we have this glorious, beautiful, rich text in John three. As a matter of fact, even as a preacher, I was frustrated it was here because last couple of weeks were just so, so rich and good. John three sixteen is so glorious. And then we got to go down to John the Baptist again. I don't want to go to John the Baptist. I want to stay with Jesus. And I even opened this and thought, boy, that just seems like this is crashing down. Why in the world do we have something else about John the Baptist? Listen to this. It's in the placement of this story that we come to find the way that we can know John the Baptist and embrace the life that he had. You see, the reason it's here is because, first of all, John is using John the Baptist as the exact opposite of Nicodemus at the beginning of John 3. Nicodemus was a man deeply rooted in his glory-grabbing system of religion. Why did those religious leaders pray? Because they wanted glory. Why did they give? Because they wanted glory. Why did they show up? Because they wanted glory. Why did they fast? Because they wanted glory. Everything they did was because they wanted glory. And they had created this system that revolved around themselves. They'd created this group of friends that all existed to give themselves affirmation and acceptance and significance. So their entire sense of significance was rooted in the system. And Jesus comes to tear down the system. And when Jesus comes to tear down the system, they are so terrified of losing their sense of identity that they kill Jesus. Because he wasn't just taking their system, he was taking their identity and their sense of significance and acceptance and affirmation. And it is amazing the crazy things people will do when they start to realize that their life and significance is fading away. That was Nicodemus. And now John comes on the scene and he's just filled with so much joy. He had nothing of earthly value. The disciples had power and wealth and fame, but they were just angry in their heart because they were grabbing on to glory. And John had nothing of earthly value, but just immense joy. He just chose to live daily for the glory of Jesus. John's question every day was this, how can the Lord use me today to help people think more about Jesus Christ? How different is that from the religious leaders? How different is that from us? So consumed with ourself, longing for people to think something about ourselves. When John just woke up every day and said, how can I live today in such a way that people would think more about Jesus? It's here because of the contrast to Nicodemus. It's also here because it shows us the way in which we can have this life. John the Apostle is just slowly writing to lead us into this life. Why? Because he knows, listen, listen to me. He knows how desperately we long for significance in life and joy. He knows that. And he knows how often we're going to try to grab it in some sense of self. He knows how much we're going to be drawn to self-love and self-promotion and self-esteem and self-care and self-interest. And he knows that we're going to be fully disappointed if we ever revolve our lives around ourselves. He knows that like John's disciples, when all of a sudden that place where we find significance is threatened, 
we get angry at Jesus. Jesus takes away that one thing that you needed to make you feel significant. And you know what we do? We get angry at Jesus. But could it be that the reason he's doing that is not to disappoint us, but to show us that our significance is in something that's not going to last. And the most gracious and kind God think could, thing God could ever do is the thing that he's going to do next week in John 4 for the woman at the well and just look at us and say, your significance is found in something that's not going to last. You will be deeply disappointed. You need to come to me. That's why it's here. And so let me close with this. All week, <laughs> I just thought to myself, I want this life. I want the John the Baptist life. Don't you want that? Like how much of my life revolves around just self-protection or, or wanting people to think something right about me or the search for some type of significance? There's just so much of that in all of our hearts. And I just think, man, I want this. And so I said, Lord, how do I get it? Like what is the way into less of me and more of you? What's the way into that? And I think the way is, is these simple things. It's the way of, of commitment. You see, verse 35, I want to make sure, I mean, verse 30, I want to make sure you get that, is a decisive, practical, daily, moment-by-moment -moment decision. Sometimes we come to these things like, he must increase and I must decrease, and we just think, Lord, I pray that you would increase and I would decrease, but that's a decision you make. The real heart behind that verse is what he says before. My joy is complete. I found joy in this. Therefore, I'm going to make a decision to do this. So it's this decision to turn the attention to Jesus. So that everything you post and everything you say and everything you do and the way in which you serve and the way in which you give and the way in which you interact with your friends and the way in which you show up at an event, every bit of that is about Jesus getting attention. That's a decision you make. The first line of our vision statement is this. We exist to be the visible presence of Jesus. That flows out of our belief that the temple of God is now the people of God, which means God's presence rests in you. And the way in which God makes himself known is filling you with his spirit and sending you places like school and work and neighbors and the grocery store. And everywhere you go, you are the visible presence of Jesus. But it doesn't matter if you're the visible presence of Jesus unless you make a commitment to make Jesus visible and not you. To not keep trying to grab the glory. It's a commitment you make. I think the reason verse 36 is here, do you see that? Because verse 36 doesn't fit there. Verse 36 fits at the end of what we saw last week in 21 because it's all the same language. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son does not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. That doesn't fit there, it fits above. So why is it here? Just to remind us that at the end of the day, what people think of you really doesn't matter at all. What matters is what they think about Jesus. You know what is incredibly depressing, but an absolute reality, you're, you're not going to be dead very long before not many people remember you. They just won't remember you that much. A couple of generations later, and they might remember your name, but they're not going to remember much about you. And the reality is we spend all of our life trying to make sure we're increasing our reputation when the only thing that has any eternal significance is what people think of Jesus. If they don't have Jesus, they've got hell. If they have Jesus, they got heaven. So why am I consumed with people thinking something about me when the only thing that matters is what they think about Jesus? So I make this commitment, this daily commitment. I want to live for Jesus today. But the final thing I'll just say is it also comes out of confidence. Commitment of confidence. 
this deep assurance that I'm loved by God. You know why it's here? It's here because it has to come after John 3, 16. Jesus loved you enough that he would go through the greatest pain in order to give you the greatest joy. So he suffered the greatest loss that you might have the greatest gain. And it is not until we get in the end of John three sixteen, in which we know we are fully loved and treasured by God that we're the bride and we're the beloved and he's come to pursue us and capture us and provide for us. Why? Because he loves us deeply and he's never gonna leave us and he's never gonna forsake us. And what he has is better for us in every way. It is when we come to that place that we're okay with not getting the glory and giving it to him. It's here because there is no way for you to ever experience this life of selflessness until you have a settled confidence that I'm the beloved of God. And I don't really need any other affirmation but that which comes from heaven. When he says, you're my beloved in whom I am well pleased. When we got that, we don't need it from everybody else. And in that moment, we can live fully for his glory. And I want that life and I want you to have it too. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen to this sermon. May you trust and follow Jesus more and lead others to do the same. For more information, visit us at pabc.org.